0: Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast, a big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey, everybody. I want to take a quick minute to tell you something that I'm really excited about. I've recently teamed up with Hitched Inc., one of the biggest and fastest growing tech startups in oil and gas. You've probably seen them all over LinkedIn. From generators to light towers, pumps to forklifts, use Hitch to pair your company with reliable rental suppliers and eliminate the hassle of logistics through the use of an in-app platform. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to schedule a demo. Cool. Let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with my man, the OG, the one and only Mr. Jake Corley co-founder at Digital Wildcatters and podcast host for OGGN's Oil and Gas This Week. Jake, it's early, man, but I know you've probably already put in a full day's work. How you doing today, Dude, man?
1: I'm doing good, man. Good. I, I love that we were able to hash this out like First thing in the morning, yeah. Like yeah. the sun's not even up yet. We're recording. <laughs> I know. I was driving, I love
0: it. driving downtown. It's raining. Normally, I'm headed out to a customer's office, but I fortunately had someone cover for me, so I don't have to think about drilling wells right now. All I got to think about <laughs> is pleasing you and making sure that I make this as entertaining for you as it is going to be for me. Man, we've known each other for not that long, but it, quite a it while. It Feels like a lot longer. It has. I remember. So for the listeners out there, Jake and I have known each other for a while. Him and Colin are jam up. I'm sure you guys have seen them all over the internet, whether it's digital wildcatters, whether it's speaking engagements, energy fin twit. I mean it you you name it, you <laughs> guys are all over it. But you kind of inspired me. You and Mark lacour kind of inspired me to get into podcasting way back in the day. I started listening to Oil and Gas this week and it was Mark and James Hahn and which James Hahn's funny. He actually came out to the hack and whack hockey thing that we do and he oh, yeah? hadn't skated in like I don't know how long, and that dude was slipping and falling all <laughs> over the place. It was fucking hilarious. But I, I met him one time, and he's goofy, but he's a good guy. So anyway, I started listening to them, and then you jumped on board, and then you guys were looking for sponsors for Happy Hours, and I hit you up. I was like, "Hey, remember that. Yeah. I'm a young dude. You know, I would love to sponsor." I say that because you know, I was like, you know, I want to get into the podcasting thing and help you guys out or just sponsor or something. It's just how somehow get into the mix. So I kind of gave you my little elevator pitch, and then one thing led to the next. Met with Mark, and then got thrown into the OGGN gang, and and then you know we just kind of clicked. And
1: that had know, to have been two years ago.
0: Yeah, it was because I know I've been with OGGN now for, and this is January 28th, and I think I started December of 2018. So starting there, but it almost took a year to get everything yeah. facilitated. So it's been a few years, I guess. And. And then, you know, me being me, I creeped on calling because I knew I saw you guys kind of collaborating way back in the day on some things. And what captivated me is you guys threw out a vlog and you guys were, you went up to some well in Oklahoma and you were all muddied and ripping through and you guys were in some (laughs) hotel. And it was like, you know, it was like Gary Viva for oil and gas. You guys were all over the internet. I was like, holy fuck, these guys are doing something different. I was like, "I, I can get into this. And then, you know, you guys showing, you guys working out and then you guys went to like europe or some shit like mm-hmm. i don't forget what it was for but so then i hit up Colin on instagram i dm'd him i was like hey dude like i know this is random but i would love to hook up with you and just grab a <laughs> coffee and shoot the shit because you know i you're into mma you're down to earth you're crushing it your next rig hand which i am come from the rig side of things so i was like i know we have something in common <laughs> Um, but enough about me. It's been a great ride. You guys are doing some cool stuff, which I hope we can talk about today. But I also want to just talk about life in general. I mean, anytime that I hear you on the microphone, which probably most people, it's all business. You know, it's nothing but, you know, latest and greatest. You've got your hands in all sorts of different things. But I'd like to get to know a little bit or at least let the listeners know. Allow me to peel back the onion and, and kind of see what let's, see let's, what makes things go in, inside of Jake Corley's head. Hold back head. the
1: tears, man. <laughs> <for> this onion,
0: <laughs> right? But before we get going, if you'd like to, you know, if you'd like to support the show, do me a huge favor. Please subscribe and you know take a few minutes, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. I've had you know. It doesn't matter. Hit me up on LinkedIn. If you hate this show and you want to see something different, let me know if you like it. Again, I was at AEDE Casino Night this last weekend, and it was extremely humbling because, you know, the first person someone comes up to you and doesn't shakes your hand. It's like, hey, you know, you're the podcast guy, right? I kind of look around like, I guess. I'm like, There's actually people that listen to this shit. It's like,
1: a cool feeling, huh?
0: <laughs> it is, and it's humbling because people thank me for what I'm doing, but it's like, no, like – thank me for helping others. And that's what I do. And and like you guys, you guys host startups and they come on, they share their story, they share how they add value to the industry. So really for me, it's a way of giving back. And similar for this episode, like, you know, I know about you, but I'd love the listeners to get to have that insight as well. But give us a trip down memory lane. I mean, I'm sure people know you, you were ex Marine, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. Even going further back, where did you grow up? And let's get down to the nitty.
1: Great question. So I grew up in College Station. So most people in the oil field know that just because that's where Texas A&M's at. Yeah. So I lived there from early age until I was 19. Mm -hmm. And then I was working at one one of the biggest employers there was Reynolds and Reynolds. And they did. It's a... Software and hardware for car dealerships, and they pretty much own the market. So, if you go to any car dealership, they have their technology there, even to this day. Right. Like, I went, I bought a car six months ago, and they brought the keys out and it had the tag on there that I used to make. No way. Yeah. No so, it's it it pretty cool. Wow. So, I got into that because my stepdad had worked there. And so, I'd kind of done hardware for two years at that point. Didn't really focus in school at that point. I graduated early, I graduated at 17. Yeah because you're a fucking nerd or what? I was always the youngest one in my grade. My okay. birthday was on the cutoff. Ah, uh, yeah, And yeah. so I graduated at 17. And so then now I'm, I'm starting college. I had an apartment. My parents moved across the country to North Carolina. And so what does every 17-year-old do? I'm like, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. So I just like didn't go to class and just threw <laughs> parties all the time. And so that didn't work out very well. And my parents called me one day and they were like, we're dropping you. I was like, okay. Like off the payroll? Off the payroll. They were like, we, anything. They weren't paying for everything, which I really appreciated. They forced me to to still work and pay for most of my stuff. Yeah. They were paying for my apartment at the time. And they said, we're not paying anymore. They said, so come January. So I had like 40 days to figure out what I was going to do with my life.
0: So were you, at that point, were you like shitting your pants? Were you like, yeah, I got this? Or like, what does that look like? Because nowadays, Parents, especially ones that, you know, most mm-hmm. of the people listen to oil and gas, it's easy to dump money into your kids, set them up, and not have that adversity that they have to face. I mean, most people, man, you know, they manufacture adversity to build some fucking grit for these kids that are getting eighth place trophies. You're 100% right.
1: So, how did that affect you, and what did that look like back then? So, I hadn't really faced a whole lot of adversity in my life up to that point, Yeah, for the most part. I never had anything handed to me, so I started working at 15, like as soon as I turned 15. Because my parents were like, "Well, if you want this, if you want new shoes, you want new clothes, you want car right. parts or whatever, work for it and get it." Yeah. And so that was kind of the mentality, really, really early on. And so my parents really never. Once I turned 15, they didn't really pay for anything. But you know, the college thing was a different. Ex- it was a different kind of experience. They wanted to support that, and then I obviously royally screwed that up. But I. Pre- but they. <laughs> but th- we had an agreement up front. They said, unless you at least maintain C's and go to class. And I didn't do that, and so they they held up their end of the bargain, and they dropped me. And that was probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And so at that point, I assessed the situation. I looked at a lot of people that I was working with at the time that were good friends of mine. A lot of these guys, you know, they were young, and you know, at, you know, 19 years old. If you're going to go make fifty thousand dollars going full time at the company that I was at, that was kind of like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Considering you're making like you know eight dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour, whatever. But I saw, I looked into a lot of people who had been there a long time and I just saw everybody was miserable. And I knew that I was going to be miserable doing that. At that point in time, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that wasn't it. Yeah. I had never been the kind of guy who was like, oh, I'm just going to go join the military by any means. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, if you go see some old pictures of me that I was like 150 pounds at six <laughs> foot, you yeah. know, I was just super skinny. I barely had worked out. And I wasn't just that super alpha guy, which yeah. a lot of people see me as that now, Right, uh, you know, 12 years later. So I said, well, you know, if I'm going to do the, the military, I'm going to do it right. And so I would mentioned it to some of my family and they were like, oh God, please just go to the Navy. Please go to the Air Force, get an admin job. You're going to die. So for someone who doesn't know much about that, so why those two versus Marines? Because you're less likely to be deployed. You're less likely to be in the line of fire. So
0: it's less risky?
1: Yeah. And then also the training is not as difficult. I mean, not to say that it's not difficult, but it's just not as difficult as the Marine Corps. Right. And so for me, it was kind of just like, "Ah, I'm just going to prove everybody wrong. So just imagine me. I look like Steve Rogers before the experiment, you know, coming (laughs) in super tiny. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm just going to prove everybody wrong and see how this goes. And that was probably the best decision. So I was the easiest recruit. I walked into the Marine Corps recruiting office and said sign me up. Yeah. No shit. And they had like their whole pitch on let's see the world and this and that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just sign Just, me up. I'm I was, like, I, was like, I was like I have I have a month left in my apartment, so I need to be able to leave <laughs> yeah. immediately after that month and so they sent me off to boot camp. So I went to boot camp January 20th, 2009. And what a wake up call that was. So anybody who's been through that, it's a lot of fun, at yeah. the least. So you're in hell for for 3 months. So it's the longest boot camp out of any of the branches. And And so what does
0: that look like? Like high level, like when you say boot camp? is it like just a bunch of working out or is it like they just beat the living shit out of you? you...
1: Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Wow. And just in your face, screaming 24 seven, you're stripped of all basic rights. You're living in a squad bay. You're showering together. Your whole life is timed. The idea of self is completely removed. You can't say the word I ever. Wow. Um, And so it's all about the team at that point. You're taught everything at that point. So they, they literally just break you down as a human. They remove all ego, all everything. And then they build you back up by the numbers, as I like to say, and teach you how to do everything in the Marine Corps way. Okay. From how your uniform looks, to how you shoot, to how you run, to how, you know, march, all of those kind of things. So, yeah, three months of that. And then after that, you go to Marine combat training. So it's just more continuation, shooting more, more guns. A whole lot of hiking, all that kind of stuff. And then after that, I went to twenty nine Palms, California for communication school. Mm. So I had already done hardware, obviously pre marine corps. And then now my MOS was to fix communication systems, you know, manpack radios, tank radios, truck radios, and just fix those. Kind of boring, but it was kind of just easy for me considering just my background. Okay, so from there, so I spent a year in Twenty Nine Palms, which is like the worst place in the world. Is it it's like yeah? In it's in like, California. Yeah, really. It's it sounds nice. It's oh, it sounds great. But <laughs> you get out there and it's like nothing. There's like literally like three restaurants out there. Damn. You're like you're secluded from everything else. That is where you go before you're deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq oh, because wow. it's the closest place in the United States to that climate. Really? Yeah. So it's it's desert. It's mountainous. You're at really high altitude. It's the weather's. You know, 14 degrees or like 114 degrees. So it's like one or the other, right? Crazy. So spent a year there and then went to Camp Pendleton was my duty station. So then I spent the remaining three years of my contract with first MLG CLR 17 communications company maintenance platoon for, yeah, for the rest of those three years. Couldn't really have a better duty station. You only have a few places you can go. You can go to Japan, you can go to North Carolina, you can go to California and go to Hawaii. And there's a couple of like smaller stations. But being there in California, especially Southern California, you're close to the beach. You're close to the desert. You're close yeah. to the mountains. Mountains for summer, mountains for winter. So you can go snowboarding. Bought a motorcycle. I was out there, so just rode around all the time. So I had... On my off time, I had no complaints whatsoever about being in, in Southern California. No kidding. Well, you yeah.
0: say you mentioned motorcycle, and I know you're into cars. Were you because you, you worked at that company like back in high school? Mm-hmm. Where did the love for cars and motorcycles come from? Did you always have that? Because now you, you still have that.
1: That was like when I was like three or four years old. I just I found myself just completely obsessed with cars, which is funny because nobody else in my family. Had that obsession. Nobody else was like a car guy or anything. It was just kind of like a I was the outlier there. Yeah, yeah. So as a kid, I was always in the library looking up, you know, exotic cars at the time. You know, so back then it's like you know it's the '90s. You've got like the the Ferrari F40s and the Ferrari F50s and some of the old Lambos and and I just appreciated all of it. And so that was something that was just always been a part of my story. I don't know, and I'm still to this day absolutely obsessed with with cars, motorcycles, anything with wheels.
0: Yeah, and you because you're you're good mechanically, right? Like you do a lot of your own work. Trial by them. fire, yeah. Yeah, Trial. that's crazy. I got a good buddy that's up in Canada. He'll tear apart everything. He's he's being into the BMWs and Audis. And yeah. that dude, like, he was my roommate, and he used my garage, which was didn't have much room, but somehow he would, like, jack it up and, like, do all sorts of shit. We had parts lying all over the place most of the time. And it just, like, to me, that I have no interest in that. I'm like, I will pay a fucking dealership to do my stuff because I am not about to get under there, which is surprising coming from the rigs. You know, I'm, I was forced to be mechanically inclined, mm-hmm. but... To get me to work on anything, I'm like, nah, no, I'd just rather pay somebody. So it's
1: mostly therapeutic for me at this point. Yeah, like if I'm like stressed out, it's like, ah, I'm just gonna go tear someone apart in the car. I'm gonna fix something.
0: Yeah, it's a way to unplug. Yeah, and and because you have a little bit, you know, obviously a pretty good skill set, in it, you can
1: do something without messing it up
0: too bad. What's a dream car if you were to get one or truck or whatever?
1: So I have a I have a Subaru STI that I just bought, and that's a great car. That was a that was a dream car as a kid. No way. So I bought that like six months ago. Love it. Dream car now. I've always joked that, you know, in the event that one of the things that we do, if we exited in these companies and I was to walk away with a good little nest egg or whatever, I love all the newer cars. I love technology. I love, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries. But if I was to build a collection, I feel like a lot of my collection would be just older, like 80s and 90s cars that I like idolized as a kid. Right. You know, so like, you know, an 89 BMW M3. Or you know some of the old Mercedes or some of the old Ferraris I remember as a kid the Ferrari 550 Marnello, which was in the Bad Boys 2 I believe. Okay yeah that was like that was like my dream car in Dark yes. blue. So I feel like, I feel like I would just buy a whole bunch of these older cars and just put up a collection
0: Yeah. Well, hey, it, it sounds like you're on the right path. So I'd imagine that's gonna that's <laughs> gonna realize probably before you even know it.
1: I so, hope so, man. I spent a lot of time on there's like a website called Bring a Trailer. Okay, and it's just like cars that auto enthusiasts are just in love with. So it could be okay, really, really fancy to just complete shit boxes, right? Huh? And it's an auction essentially. Really? Um, so I spent a lot of time on there just. There's a lot of like seven thousand dollar cars, and I'm like, oh, i would love to have this because
0: no way. Yeah, you're gonna be forget who it is. I mean, a lot of like celebrities and things. They have like undercar, like underground garages with like a bunch. And I forget, is it Jay Leno or someone has like a shit. Ton Jay of cars. Leno has
1: a huge collection,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, huh? Maybe you'll put give him a run for his money one day. I hope so,
1: man. <laughs> right? That'd be the ultimate retirement, just to become Jay Leno. Yeah,
0: Dude, that would be <laughs> neat, man. There's a. Uh, yeah, that lifestyle would be nuts. It's like, and it's cool because folks like that, or anyone who's made it to that level, it's like they use money as a tool versus like something that they're chasing. Mm-hmm. I was actually having a conversation with Ryan Hunt from Rig Callout. Mm-hmm. When he comes to town, I try and grab coffee with him. I just—he's just a great dude. I've great. had him on the podcast, and I just love you know speaking with him. And we were talking about some of the people he runs around with, and he—you know—he's—he's he's in the—you know—startup, raising capital, dealing with you know some high-level individuals, and. Like, yeah, some of these folks like using money as a tool to just do cool things. He was telling me about his wife who owns a company who works for this dude who's like extremely wealthy. And but what he thought was extremely neat is he like randomly was like, Oh, I'll just buy like 300 acres and I want to host weddings on my land. Like, and then just like allowing that to then do something different. And just like it's it's hard to fathom, but anyway, it got sidetracked. Going back to the military and you know, being in the Marines, I have a good friend of mine who's a business partner who's ex-Marines. And he likes to this day, he still has that Marine mindset. So what was the biggest takeaway from that? And do you still find yourself kind of trained and operating under that sort of structure?
1: Yes and no. I think the one clear thing that I got out of the Marine Corps was that I couldn't really ever work for anybody again. Mm. So I've always said that those four years were the best four years and the worst four years of my life. And if I had to do it again, I would, because I learned so many valuable lessons from that. I think the biggest things that you walk away with are a sense of mission accomplishment and being able to to do whatever it is at all costs and mm. I think that's been extremely valuable on my entrepreneurial journey over the sure. last 7 years of being able to you know to wake up early and to to stay up late to work weekends and just you know hone in on what the mission is I think that's been extremely extremely viable for me. Yeah. Let's see what else. Attention to detail. That's a big thing that, you know, from the smallest things on your uniform to how your your uh, barracks room looks, everything has to be completely tidy. And the point being, with attention to details, if you're in country, so you're in Afghanistan, wherever, on any kind of deployment, if you can notice the smallest of things, you can notice somebody on the horizon who is, you know, an insurgent trying to take you out or something mm. and just being aware of things like that all the time.
0: It's like an, an heightened sense of awareness all the time.
1: All the time, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I can that, see that, that doesn't really ever turn off. Like the other day I went to I went to and this is also combined with, with recent events, but I went to church with my family two days ago and I'm sitting in the, in the back row, which naturally I kind of like to have my back to the wall and stuff. Yeah. And I was just sitting here imagining like there was a church shooting here in Texas. Right. And I was just thinking like, okay, what's the game plan in the event that somebody comes in from that side. And the event that somebody comes from this side. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't have my I don't have any carry on me. Okay. So I just got my body. What do I do? No right. Way. And you run these kind of scenarios in your head. And I don't know. It's weird. I never really actually talk about this, but yeah, every place. Every place that I go to. Wow, that's
0: probably especially nowadays extremely important. Yeah. And so, is that something that you? Because you have a, you have a son. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you'll teach him? I mean, absolutely. It, you know, assuming let's just assume he doesn't go into the military, but mm-hmm. having that, that like level of awareness and safety and making sure you're protecting yourself. Absolutely, I think is extremely important nowadays. I don't. I think people are just so lackadaisical and mm. and they just half the time their eyes are zoning on their to their phones where if something mm. were to be going on around them they probably wouldn't even notice yeah but yeah so let's i wasn't gonna go this way but talking about schools like so the church shootings school mm. shootings what's your mind is it becoming more evident that those things are happening or is media do you think is has like it's exposing it's it more
1: I think it's both. Yeah. The media is able to garner more attention, and considering both of us are kind of in media by doing this, yeah, you're able to control the narrative, and you're able to get the most views by posting the most polarizing things or the most devastating things, right? yeah, as opposed to posting positive news repeatedly. But it is a fact that you know the number of school shootings and stuff has increased dramatically in church shootings and just public shootings, and I think that's indicative of just the overall... I think more and more people, I think everybody actually, everybody has some sort of not really illness, but has mental issues. Mm. And I think we get that through the experiences in life. You know, I've known a lot of people who had very traumatic things happen as a kid, and that completely transformed their entire life. Yes. I've had close friends who had traumatic events happen where. It was either a car accident and they hit their head or my grandfather fell out of a tree as a kid and it actually made him bipolar. He didn't know until he was in his seventies. Yeah. And so like, I think everybody has some form of, you know, I guess fucked upness, right? Yeah. I know I do. And everybody that I've really gotten to know mostly does as well. And I think that the media makes these guys famous, even if it's for the wrong reasons, right? So you're like, well, if I'm going to go out, at least everybody's going to know my name. Yeah. You know, so I'm just going to go shoot up a school or shoot up a... You know, church or something, right? Um, and I think that we shouldn't give them the press that we have. I think it's important to be, it's important to know these kind of things, but to stop really giving them a platform to spread this kind of hatred and evil.
0: Yeah, no, it's sad, and I mean, my heart goes out to a lot of the families. and And growing up in Canada, it's so hard to comprehend. And then you get into the whole like, well, in Canada, like no one owns guns, and maybe that's the answer. And I know, you know, the U.S. is built on like completely different foundation than Canada but it's sad to see but it was I was just curious about that and I mean how much of a role do you think social media plays in this
1: I don't think it's the traditional social media I think it's the dark places on the web the Mm. the forums like the reddits and the four chans and the things like that it's people who have predominantly been somewhat considered like outcast right? right so maybe socially they're kind of maybe it's either by their own doing or by everybody else They've grown up around, have kind of been ostracized, and so then they find solace in in finding people who also have this kind of hatred in the world, right? And there's places like this on the internet where you can go, and there's people talking about, let's just go blow this up, or let's do this. I don't know if you saw the whole like "Don't Fuck with Cats" documentary on Netflix. So
0: my wife started watching it on the plane when she was heading up to Baltimore. So I haven't seen it, but she was like, "It's crazy. Like we should watch it." So what is it?
1: I haven't watched it all the way through, but it's this kid who essentially like killed this cat on like youtube okay and then people the whole the video went viral and a whole bunch of people like a group of like fifteen thousand people started like this facebook group and they were trying to use context clues from the video to figure out where he either where he was or who he was because oh. they said if he's going to kill this cat he's going to kill a person okay two or three years later he does the same thing but he kills this this chinese student on camera and dismembers him on camera and uploads the video what yeah
0: god that's disgusting. It's, yeah,
1: it's disgusting, and it's nuts I haven't, I haven't actually watched this, but I've, I've read the backstory on like Wikipedia, and I watched yeah. the trailer and stuff.
0: What is it based on a true story? Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, okay. It's an absolute true story. Wow. Yeah, it's not. That is insane, man. I could not imagine. <sighs> I don't know. What's the answer to all that? I mean, is there one? I mean, is this going to get progressively worse, or like, how do you manage something like that?
1: Man, I uh, if I had the answer, I'd probably be the richest man in the world. <laughs> right. Do you I, think it starts with like bad parenting? I think so. So if you look at like school shooters, actually, I was doing some research on this just kind of because I was curious. Yeah. You look at a lot of these shooters and a lot of them don't have fathers at home. Okay.
0: So there's a trend.
1: There's a trend. There's a trend. And so they're growing up in either, you know, fatherless homes or broken homes, or there's a lot of things that are, this is not always the case. There are certain outliers who had of course. great lives and stuff, and maybe they were just burying stuff, you know, deep inside and they just kind of blew up one day. And But it seems like the trend is that most of them come from some sort of broken home. And I've seen that through a lot of people that I've known that have, that still are dealing with, you know, issues of either, you know, sexual abuse as a child or domestic abuse or neglect. And then now they have like, you know, daddy or mommy issues or whatever. And like that really, like that small little seed becomes so much larger as you get older. Right.
0: So, okay. So that's interesting. Are there enough resources for mental health and not only for folks like that, but like ex-military because you're a lot of like Mm -hmm. you know we have a gentleman who's actually ex-marine in our office he's our hsne manager and he said like so i've heard both sides i've heard like you know there's not enough resources and once you're done you know people don't the government doesn't give a shit about you but then talking with him he was saying that there's actually and there's a term or like an organization i forget what it's called but he was like if you just do the steps and take the advice that whatever this is called, I forget mm-hmm. you probably know it's like an organization that helps ex veterans. There's a
1: whole bunch of those. Okay. So, so I've got, i got two takes on this. So for general public, I think that there is, I mean, there are more resources for mental health than there's ever been in the history of the world. Right. Right. Mental health is finally having a light shown on that. And I think that's a great thing. It's unfortunate that a lot of things had to happen for that for this to happen now. There's a ton of resources. There's apps, there's call in phone lines, there's forums, there's you know, actual therapists and stuff that you can see. On the veteran side, there's also a ton, a ton, a ton of resources. I think a lot of the veterans don't know that there's as many resources as there are. And so yeah. they rely specifically on the VA.
0: And, That's what it is. And
1: the VA is awful. The VA is awful. Okay. I've had terrible so why experiences with you're just a number. You're a number to the VA. Quality is awful. They don't attract the best doctors typically. If I was president, I would eliminate the VA healthcare centers. And so we have like this multi-billion dollar, huge, it's one of the biggest hospitals I've ever been to in my life. It's so easy to get lost in there. Eliminate those because we don't need centers. What you need is to cut that cost, right? And then give veterans an insurance card. Allow them to go to wherever they want.
0: Mm. And it
1: would be much more efficient because like, so I go to the VA outpatient clinic in Tomball. Yeah. And that was meant to serve... I want to say like 16,000 veterans in the surrounding area. So it's supposed to be like in some kind of radius. I don't know what the radius is. Right. But what's happening is people are driving from all over there and they're serving four times as many people. And so to get an appointment, like for example, I had to get some appointments for when I tore my pack and a bunch of other things earlier last year. It was two to three months to get an appointment.
0: What? Holy smokes, man. Sounds, and if like, you need something sounds immediate, like public you healthcare to, in Canada.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then if you need something immediate, you have to go to the ER. And you go to the ER, and then it's like, well, we don't do MRIs, we don't do x-rays, we don't do this, we don't do that. And what? so half the time, you just feel like you're going to die. No if kidding. it's something life-threatening, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of issues with the VA. I can make an entire documentary on issues with the VA. It's that bad.
0: So if you feel like that, I would imagine oh. you're not just the only one.
1: Imagine, so- like, I know how to use technology, I know how to find answers and stuff, but a lot of these guys don't. And so, like, you see... Guys in the waiting room for four or five hours at a time. Wow! No legs, or you can tell that they're just in a ton of pain, and yeah, it's, that's
0: sad, dude.
1: It's sad. But I think the biggest issue, going back to what we're saying about mental health, is that I think most people do not want to admit that there's something wrong with them. Well, of course, the ego will run all over you mm-hmm. if you do, mm-hmm. and so it's like we have to be macho. You know, as guys, we can't have, we can't talk about anxiety, we can't talk about depression. Like, those are very, very real things,
0: Mm -hmm. you know, and
1: And it completely alters your mindset. You know, if you're experiencing a large amount of anxiety, a large amount of depression, like, you don't think about, you don't think logically anymore at all.
0: So, here's something that I was always curious about. I say always, just more so recently. The economy's well, right? But the level of anxiety, depression, everything is on a rise. When this thing somehow pops and people can't just rely on a good paycheck to, you know, stimulate their happiness… Is it going to get like 10 times worse? You know what I mean? Like, because then all of a sudden, like people don't have the money, lose their jobs. You know, there's, they're not getting as many likes on Instagram. Like it's it's all weirdly tied together. And so I, I I'm think, thinking like. I think it's a
1: social media thing. It's this whole, like this Instagram life, this Facebook life. Like it is so gilded. It's so fake. Yeah, You know, it's like, it's the perfect angle. It's the perfect colors. It's like a
0: personal highlight reel.
1: Yeah. Everybody, everybody's (laughs) life seems just so amazing online. And so it's, we take the best moments of our life and curate them and we don't show all the nasty details of what's actually going on behind the scenes. But somehow everybody forgets about that and they think, oh, so-and-so's life is so great. And -and so-and-so's life is so great. I hate my life and I'll never get out of this. And so you're always kind of playing that whole keeping up with the Joneses. Of you know how can I spend more money to go on more trips to get more pictures for Instagram, or how can I (laughs) like you know buy the Lambo and then you know take pictures on Instagram and everybody's going to like me and stuff. And so it's like it's never enough because if you get caught up in that game, like there's always going to be somebody who is outpacing you. Yeah, there's always Jeff Bezos, right? For sure. (laughs)
0: Like yeah,
1: and so it's it's just not sustainable. And so I think you have to being an entrepreneur, at least for me, it's to to drive yourself to do better and better and better, but to not be to not be complacent, but also to be content right. and to be grateful for where you're at. Yes. And I think if you can practice gratitude, then I think a lot of those issues go away.
0: Right. And I post on LinkedIn the other day or a while back, but like if people would be more focused on chasing happiness than money, I think that would flip the script for a lot of people. Because for most people think it's a linear path. More money equals more happiness. But you listen to a lot of people I read something that, and I don't know how they did this study or how many people, but there was basically an income level and somehow they were able to quantify the level of happiness within a household. And it was like seventy-five to 90,000 as a combined income was the highest level of happiness. And anything beyond that was like the level of happiness slowly started to diminish. Now, of course there's outliers, but again, you're taking averages of averages, who knows, but I look back, you know, in and, and, you and i both, we've worked our asses off to generate a, a certain level of income or and lifestyle that we've become accustomed to. But I was just as happy living in a tiny house with my wife, you know, trying to make it, going through school, thinking that, you know, like when are we ever gonna get out of this? If only we had X, oh, that would be so nice. But if only you had X is always a topic of discussion. Like we were talking the other day, it's like, oh, it'll be so nice when our kids are finally sleeping through the night right now we're you know mm-hmm. going through that and so it's you're always chasing something instead of just like being like you said being grateful for what you have and just waking up with you know like having love for what is instead of mm-hmm. what isn't I think would certainly you know help people to just not continuously focus on the chase because it's in that once you get to the finish line it's you're then it's kind of like that sense of emptiness and that's why I think so I and I witnessed this for my old man when he retired you know as he was working he was constantly chasing the next deal he owned his own business and so there he was always working towards something and then when he retired, he just figured oh I'm just gonna you know get a place in Mexico relax and not have any stress well his mental health as soon as he had nothing to work towards and enjoy the process and the mm-hmm. journey it was like once he got through the finish line it was like a drastic decline on his mental health and to where then he he always was able to sort of soften the, cause he had anxiety, he had depression that just amplified once he didn't have anything like, I guess, lack of purpose. Mm -hmm. And if I guess kind of tying back what we were talking about is like being grateful and and having finding purpose for something. And if you can always give more than you take, I think is extremely rewarding where I don't think a lot of, a lot of people are so in it for themselves instead of being able to give back and karma is fucking real. So if if you continuously give and help, that's mm-hmm. gonna come back tenfold. And so I think just having that mindset, I think there's a lot of people, like a lot of influential people talking about that, which is super cool. And then that's spreading through the masses just because of you know social media and whatever. But I think the problem is it's always gonna remain, but I think the level of awareness is increasing, which is
1: awesome to see. So So there's yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. So the first thing on on the money and happiness. I think it was Biggie said, more money, more problems. And that's like, <laughs> right. like you make more money. A lot of the basic things go away, like worried about how you're going to eat or pay your bills and stuff like that. But it is, if you're truly as an entrepreneur chasing more things, you're taking on more responsibilities and more liabilities. Yeah. And these newer things give you new levels of stress mm-hmm. and it's, it's managing employees. It's making sure that you're like, you're responsible for their livelihood. Right. And you know, them putting food on the table for their families and it's like stressful. So, I made a lot of money and I've also been really broke. And so, but there's been, there's been times in both where it's seasonal. It's like, I'm, I'm really happy at certain times and other times I'm just not, right? right?
0: Where do you, so I wanted you to keep going, but when have you been the most happiest and why?
1: I think I'm most happy when I feel fulfilled. Yeah. And I feel like I'm on the right path. And my trajectory of where I want to be as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, but then also being a new father, there's a new layers to this. And so, it's completely kind of changed the way that I, it was always for so long before being before being dad. It was, you know, I want to be the world's greatest entrepreneur at all cost. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is where that mission accomplishment comes in. So it's <laughs> right. up early, it's up late, it's working, working my ass off, it's working weekends, it's not spending time with any of my friends, it's not spending any time with my family. It's, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Kind of like what Mark Cuban says about, you know, if you're not working 24 hours a day, somebody else will come and knock you off. And that, that kind of got imprinted in my brain when when I first started on this journey. And becoming a dad, things changed a little bit because it became evident to me that this whole at all cost thing is not sustainable because it puts your relationships in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. right? And then it got me thinking a lot about just my legacy. And it's sort of thinking about not just when I died they're probably going to say, yeah, you know, he was a great businessman and stuff, but they're really going to talk more to the character of who I am as a human being. For sure. Right. And so I've really been thinking a lot about this, especially over the past few months about just how many people, and Gary Vee says the same thing, how many people are actually going to be at your funeral?
0: Dude, I was just going to ask you that once you're done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how many people are actually going to be at your funeral? And they're not going to talk about how much money you made or the cars that you had or the house that you have and all that's great. That's great stuff to have if you want it but it's, it's the impact that you were able to make on other people's lives. Yes. Right. And I think from that, I think that's really where if you focus on, like you said, on focus on the giving instead of always focusing on receiving, Mm. I think you find a lot of happiness in that place.
0: Yeah, most definitely. No, and I love you saying that. We've mentioned entrepreneurship. It is such a trend right now. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, and it even hits close to home. My wife and I, and she's too busy to listen to this, but I'm gonna talk real about her sometimes. She's watching this show called Goop Something. I don't know. It's it's something, <laughs> it's it's where this lady, and I forget her name, but she's well known. She has this company, it's a lifestyle, and I think it's like makeup, but healthy makeup or something. I don't know. Anyway, you know, she's had a kid, or say like we've had two. We've recently had another. Well, now she's chasing that purpose okay she's been a mom she's done well you know and now she's like okay i want to be able to contribute on another level financially i want to have something for myself which is like i support her 110% she's always supported everything that i've done but she sees <laughs> she's like i want to have my company i want to be able to work when i want to work and i want to have fun employees and just have fun and and i'm just thinking like have you been watching too much tv and looking at too much instagram because that's exactly what they want you to think and then people would think that that's what entrepreneurship is so what I would like for you to do is talk about entrepreneurship, but all the dirt, not, mm-hmm. not all the cool things that comes with it. Because everyone, everyone can go online and search entrepreneurship and all this flashy bullshit comes up. But what does it mean to you to be an entrepreneur? And what does it take to finally get to a place where you can maybe post something cool on Instagram?
1: First off, I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. And I honestly, I wouldn't even suggest that most people become an entrepreneur. I feel like I'm an entrepreneur because I can't do anything else. Right. I feel like I'm wired this way. I feel like I have to kind of blaze my own path and kind of march to the beat of my own drum. Being in any kind of super structured corporate type environment, same with the Marine Corps, just completely sucks the life out of me. It's like, it just, like the air leaves a room. Mm. And then I just have tons of anxiety. So I always have to be working towards, with me, especially doing this whole startup thing, it's not just about any kind of cash compensation. It's about working towards some kind of exit, some kind of big payday. Right, mm-hmm. and I have to have kind of have like a carrot dangled over my head, but to get there, man, I've been doing this for seven years, and a majority of that time, I made practically no money. Right, right. And so my wife is working; we were able to get by. We, you know, we're always able to to make ends meet, but it's stressful. It's like super, super stressful mm-hmm. most of the time. And it seems like the more successful we get, the more stressful it becomes. Like I mentioned, you take on you take on new liabilities because you're trying to go to that new level. But mm-hmm. every time you try to get to that new level, it's like. With it comes a whole lot more burdens that you have to carry with you every day. Right. You know, it's not just, it's not just, you know, traveling to fucking Tahiti and and taking pictures on Instagram and stuff. Like, can you do stuff? Yes, you can do like lifestyle type entrepreneurship and stuff, but you'll never be that Mark Cuban. You'll never be that Jeff Bezos. Like, if you want to make just enough money just to post pictures on Instagram, yeah, you can probably do that. Start an e commerce brand, start a supplement brand, start something where it doesn't require you to really be in one place at any given time. And it's possible, and some people do that do that very, very well, you know. Mm-hmm. Or if you just want to be a YouTuber and just make vlogs or whatever it may be, but if you want to be, you know, building an actual company and going out and raising money and and trying to turn this into something big, what is required of you? I think most people just have super, super unrealistic expectations. Like you have to come in, and it's not just about working long; it's about just working hard. Yeah. And people don't realize just the challenges that you have to go through daily. Yeah. You know of like. If you're not bringing in, if you're not selling, or you're not bringing in any kind of revenue, and you have employees, guess what? I pay payroll out of my own pocket. Right. You know, or I pay companies' liabilities out of my own pocket.
0: Is it true that as an entrepreneur, you pay everyone else before you pay yourself? And Absolutely. Most of the time you're not paying yourself.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> right. That's what I've heard, and and I've I kind of dabble in some things, but I was talking to someone the other day who owns their own company, and they're like, "Oh, you got some entrepreneurial spirit," and and I'll never claim to be an entrepreneur because I feel like for me. I mean I have some side hustles and you know the podcasting thing but to me if you're an entrepreneur you are literally gambling on the company that you own and that is the that is what's going to provide food on your table. I have a cushion of a of a corporate entity that's going to give me a paycheck whether I perform today, tomorrow, if I don't perform for the next 4 days and literally sit on my ass and not do anything. I would never do that, but the reality is I'm comfortable knowing that there's a, there's a corporate entity that's worth a billion dollars that has money to pay me. And that's great. And so, yeah, for me, it's, I can never put myself in, in your shoes or anyone else's shoes. Like if I was to quit my job today and solely depend on my side hustles, I don't, I could do it, but it's not something I'm prepared to do right now. And I would just encourage anyone out there that's unless you're willing to eat shit for 10 years and then hopefully you're in a position that that you can start collecting a paycheck. Yeah, it's I would just, you know, the one thing that I've done recently and I forget where I've seen this, but if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you're thinking of quitting your job and starting something because, you know, you're just so passionate about it, ask the people that are closest to you if they think you're an entrepreneur. Yep, I've done that and I've and I've had actually interest. I've had my expectations where people are like, no, like you're a corporate person. But the ones that are closest to me are like, yeah, you don't deserve working for someone else. You need to be doing your own thing because you always have this itch. And so whether I act on it now or in five years, I'm 33 years old. I mean, I'm fucking young. I you a lot of time. I'm lost. in the second quarter, not even. Yeah. I'm not even at halftime, you know. And, and it's funny because, you know, we mentioned Gary Vee. I listen to a lot of his stuff and a lot of it's repetitive, but I think a lot of it is, if you can digest it, there's a lot of nuggets there that, that he talks about. And, yeah. and he talks about, you know, he'll be in the, doing a speech and be like, who's under 40? And then he'll be like, well, fuck you guys. You guys, you're not even getting started. And so, you know, when I, it was interesting because I always, I always kind of put myself in quarters, you know, like age wise, I'm like, I'm 30. And, but, you know, I only have like a few years. Left, like if I work till I'm but then I'm like realistically, yeah, if I live till hundred or even ninety, like I'm not even getting started. So is that part of it super interesting. But I guess going back to that, the entrepreneur stuff, let's I want to shift gears now. I know we've been talking about forty-five minutes. We haven't been touched on oil and gas, and this is oil and gas we on short. As but, long as you want, man. but this, but this is good, but let's talk about podcasting. How did you get into podcasting, and how has that helped you, or has it even helped you? I mean, where what's your position
1: on that right now? Completely accidental. Yeah. I had just known Mark. Mark and I had worked together for a few years prior. Whenever I first came into oil and gas, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. So, you know, we started GDS where, you know, oil, it was essentially oil and gas software for operators. It was like a mini ERP, SaaS-based, didn't know anybody, went to a meetup group on meetup.com called Oil and Gas Entrepreneurs. I was like, well here's some people who are like me. I'm in an industry. I don't know anybody. So let's go. Mark LaCour was speaking. Yeah. And so we connected, found out we were both Marines, both in the cars, both in working out. We grabbed lunch. And then from there, he just started kind of plugging me in and introducing me to a lot of people. And then I started co-organizing the oil and gas entrepreneurs group. And then we kind of grew that and we, we did a lot of cool things with that. And then Mark was like, Hey, I want to start this American Petroleum Institute young professionals group. Do you want to be, you know, one of the co-founders of that? And I was like, yeah, great. So it was like me and, you know, five other people. And we did that for two years. So we hosted like rig tours. We hosted, did a tour of like Philip 66. We did all these different events and dinners and happy hours and all that kind of stuff. And then it was sometime after that, it was the end of 2016. So I had just left GDS where August 12th, 16. And I want to say it was about a month later. Mark was like, Hey, do you, I need a host. Do you want to host with me? And I was like, man, I've never been on the microphone before, like <laughs> at least not since like my high school days of like playing in bands and stuff. Yeah, I was like, sure. I was like, I feel like I'm gonna look retarded, but let's let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, if you go back to episode ninety of Oiling Gas yes this week, that was my first episode. And it's, was it? Yeah, it's very. It's. Actually I actually have it on my phone, like saved as like in iTunes. Okay. And so it randomly comes on sometimes, and I'll listen to like just various parts of it, yeah. just appreciate how far. No kidding. I've come in that. Yeah. yeah. It's but it's one of these acquired skills, you know. It's nothing really prepares you for it. Yeah. So it's been a it's been a fun ride, and and like you said, you know, going to certain events and stuff, and having somebody walk up to it and be like, oh, like yeah, and, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, love the podcast, listen to every episode, yada yada yada. That was almost immediate. Yeah. Went to Nape. So we started. I started at the end of sixteen. Went to Nape early seventeen. So Nape summits, so I guess it was like February seventeen, and got stopped like five or six times. Yeah. Just hey, love the podcast. You're doing great. Keep it up. Yada yada yada. And I was like, man, this is insane. Right. And then it was like almost immediately after that, we went to Tulane University and spoke to their MBA and Energy program. We spoke spoke at a bunch of different schools and different organizations. And yeah, it's just been like, it's been a crazy ride. And then Colin and I had met sometime in like early 16 or late 15 or something. And then we How were did already you guys mean? just through LinkedIn. Okay. He, he had reached out one day and we, we met up and got lunch and just kind of hit it off turned into like a three or four hour lunch. And then it was just, you know, texting every day. And he was still working at adventure at the time. And then he left that and we were working on a bunch of different things together, just trying to figure out which path we were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Yeah, And I believe that's a very important strategy. You throw a lot of stuff at the wall and you validate which one's going to make the most progress. Right. And then you just drop everything else and you go all in on this. Okay. But if you go all in on one thing and you haven't really tested some other things, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like you can make a pretty big, pretty bad decision by spending 10 years on something that maybe is not going to be as fruitful as some of your other ideas that you've had.
0: So how have you, by doing that, obviously there's risk involved with any venture. How Mm -hmm. do you evaluate risk when looking at different
1: ventures? So at one point in time, we were doing, so I was doing Well Hub. I was doing River Oaks Natural Resources. So we we had some wells up in Oklahoma that we Mm -hmm. operated. We had sold those. And then we were doing consulting. And consulting was paying the bills at that point. And we knew that we probably didn't want to continue consulting so we tried it out, did a few contracts, made some good money doing it. It was very evident to us that we probably don't want to do this. And so we went the E&P route. We were planning on raising $100 million from private equity for a non-op play in the onshore Gulf Coast through Texas and Louisiana, mm. all conventional assets, but just non-op. Through that process, we, we talked with David Ramsenwood, We talked with a bunch of other guys who run non-op funds. We ran a million different models. We evaluated a ton of different deals. And it was a great learning process. And what yeah. we eventually came to the conclusion was that we didn't want to work for private equity. And looking back now, that was such a great decision because we would be in such a terrible position at this point in time. <laughs> no kidding. So so we worked on that for a long time. We did the consulting. We tried it. And we were like, yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's not bad, but it's not really what we want to do. Always loved technology. And that's what got me into this space. And so that's what we really doubled down on.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that with technology Talk to me a little bit about the current podcast that you guys have. So Mm -hmm. you went, you're still tied into with OGGN, Mm -hmm. obviously with oil and gas this week, you know, you guys decided to go start digital wildcatters. So, and then within that you have the podcast, oil and gas tech startups, which is very cool. I mean, so many people, I mean, you guys have a mass audience right now. Talk to you. Us a little bit about the startups podcast, you know, and what you guys are doing there and then the rest of the digital wildcatter stuff.
1: That started off as a side project and we just realized we had a lot of cool friends at the time. Leading up to that, we were already doing the the happy hours like every month and mm-hmm. were you at the first one? Or the first one of the first three happy hours that we did at We Work Galleria?
0: So actually I never went to that one. I went to afterwards. Shoot, I remer- I don't remember, but I never went to the WeWork one.
1: The no. energy of those has never been replicated by any event that I've ever been to. No, it was like it was insane. There was like so hundreds of people jam packed into WeWork. We had kegs of beer. We had pizza everywhere. We had forgot to buy plates. Everybody's just like holding pizza. Nah. Music's blasting. <laughs> it was just nuts. Like the first first three, and I think it was just because for one. WeWork was brand new. Nobody knew what it was at that point. So the ambiance was was great. Yeah. And then nobody was really hosting, like, cool happy hours in oil and gas. Right. And so just a ton of people came out. Yeah. And so through that, I guess we had kind of, I guess, obviously through oil and gas this week as well, we kind of gained some notoriety around that. And then we had met a whole lot of cool people. We were like, hey, what if we just record some of these conversations? Like, we're having great lunches and dinners with people all the time. And so we decided to kick that off and just invited just friends that we had onto the show and just started recording and just kind of figured it out as we went along. No format. We still operate the exact same way. We have no questions. We have nothing lined up. It's just tell the stories of the founders, talk about what they're doing now, talk about the ups and downs. Yeah, And that seems to just resonate with people. And so now we're 61 episodes deep Yeah, the last year.
0: No, it's interesting because there's so many people that have recently entered the space. What would you say... For the folks that are doing it well, that come on your podcast, what is the common denominator like in a takeaway, not necessarily from a technology standpoint, for the like just the the people that are doing disruptive and cool shit within the industry? Like what does it take and what do you recognize about a lot of these folks that come on your podcast?
1: Truly understanding their market and understanding who the end user or customer is. Good answer. No, I like that. If you're just out there just building a a company or an app or whatever it may be without really understanding who's going to be using it, Mm. you see a major divergence in those two paths. Gotcha. If if you don't take the time, like we've seen a lot of Silicon Valley companies, even some of the big tech companies really don't take the time to intrinsically understand our industry. They try to build these apps and stuff and different softwares for it, and it just flops every time. Right. And then you have the guys who understand it and they understand the problem backwards and forwards and they're able to build a great solution around it there's another third camp where there's people who are solely from the industry who've never had any experience outside of that or any exposure to they, they want to get into building tech for oil and gas but they've never been exposed to the latest technologies in silicon valley and mm-hmm. then those also flop well because they're not self-aware enough to know what's really where they stand in the greater scheme of things
0: okay huh that's interesting i would have never thought of it that way you mentioned drw Mm -hmm. david ramson wood you guys had him on you know, the podcast, you guys actually did like a mini series, right? With him, Mm -hmm. with the vlog. Mm -hmm. How did you guys hook up with him? And I've I've met him and I'm a big supporter. I, you know, bought the book and I met him for coffee. Like a long time ago, I was going to Denver for some customer meetings and I threw up something on LinkedIn. I'm like, Hey, I'm in Denver. Anyone want to meet? And it's before he became this like internet celebrity. He hit me up. He's (laughs) like, Hey, do you have time to meet for coffee? And I was like, huh, I'm Like this guy's cool. I was like, I seen him post some neat stuff. I'm like, it'd be neat to shoot the shit with him. And sure enough, he's a fellow Canadian and we hit it off. But talk to me about your relationship with him and, and what you think yeah. he's doing right now. Cause it's pretty neat.
1: So I met him. So this was during the time when we were, were preparing to raise the 100 million from private equity. Mm-hmm. So there was a event that SBE was hosting. It was how to raise money from private equity. Okay. I was like, what, what better event to go to? So I went <laughs> yeah. and we'd already owned our wells in Oklahoma at that point. And so it was really cool going into a room that was jam-packed with 200 engineers and geologists and landmen and stuff. And I'm probably one of the youngest people in the room. And I'm also probably the only one who was actually owning and operating walls at that time, too, (laughs) who was not a landman, who was not an engineer, who was not anything from necessarily the industry. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And David was speaking. And so it was was him and, and three or four other companies who had raised a ton of money from private equity and they were talking about the lessons that they've learned and what to keep in mind and I took like six pages of notes and I realized David kind of just had a knack for talking and so after the presentation was over I reached out to him and was just like hey you know I loved your presentation you know we'd love to get you on the show sometime if you're interested and he was just like, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. Mm. So funny story is I asked all the other presenters that day too, and it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, no <laughs> way, yeah. Well, they missed in, in person badass. too, and they kind of just kind of like shooed me off. And I was like, oh, okay. So I remember that, and I remember exactly who they are. So, no shit. but David was like, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. And so the next time he was in town, he called me up and he was like, hey, can we do the podcast? And I was like, yeah, that's great. And so we hit it off with him, and we just have you know a great relationship and great chemistry there, and we've done some great work with David, and we would love to continue to do some more great work with him in the future and we're super excited for everything that he's done now that he's a you know a full-time you know investor um, yeah, you know he's kind of stepped away from an active role over at Franklin Mountain so yeah. i'm i'm curious to see what's next for him
0: yeah the old hot take when i met with him i think he had it was maybe like a month after he had started and and i don't remember the story now i'd hate to butcher it but how he started with the hot take of the day i'm sure he's mentioned it on some podcasts or something like that but it's funny cuz it was kind of like out of principle, because someone shit on me. He's like, I don't need this guy's hot take. And he's like, perfect. I'll name it hot take of the day. And so it's kind of <laughs> like a fuck you to whoever it was that was shitting on him for trying to give it in like business advice to some company, which he's very good at. But
1: I love the stuff that he's talking about because it's stuff that it needs a light shown on it. Yeah. That and then and combined with a lot of stuff that you see an energy fin into it. Yes. A lot of people just don't really truly realize the state of. The industry, and I think it's super, super important because you know our jobs and our businesses depend on that. And so it's For sure. it's it's good to understand the good, bad, the ugly, and all different sides and different opinions, you know, about that. And so I think he's he's out there doing God's work.
0: Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. <laughs> well, he, uh, like I said, he, he's built his brand. Now he's got his own podcast. For those of you, I'm sure you probably know, but if not, it's on iTunes. Hot take of the day. You'll find him just about anywhere. He's. I feel like he's like a full time speaker and podcaster now. But it's interesting because if you subscribe to his newsletter or his daily deal, he'll send out some interesting stuff. And he recently, to his audience, sent out a spreadsheet, how he calculates his smog analysis. And if mm-hmm. anyone out there, you know, he's got his own metric on how he evaluates companies. And have you dove into that at all? I have, or, yeah, yeah. What, so I tried figuring it out, but there's some certain variables in there that I couldn't figure out because I'm just a, shit, I'm just a mud salesman, but <laughs> I'm becoming more interested in the finance part of it. And so once he started coming out with that... and. And the dude selflessly throws out a spreadsheet that he could probably charge people a thousand dollars for, and people would probably pay for it if, if you actually feel that that smog analysis is valuable. And I've talked to some other folks, and they're kind of like, "Oh, it's just a PV ten or oh, whatever in their terminology." They think it's they shit on it, but regardless, is he's figured out a way to you know somehow value companies under his own terms or whatever the case may be? But is that a, like what is that for the people who maybe aren't is aware of what that is? So.
1: I am by no means as sophisticated of an investor as as David, but I do believe that he has a point with the way that he's valuing. And I can't remember exactly what the formula is to get to the Spong analysis. I would go refer to some of his posts, but I I dove through it and I was like, you know, this makes sense. But one of the biggest issues that we have in the industry today is if you were to look at whether it's you know equities, so anything in the stock market, or whether it's looking at oil deals, is there is no transparency in this industry and everybody is going to value things differently. I can have 10 people in a room looking at either equities or looking at a deal, and I ask them to, to each do a valuation of it, and I would get 10 different wide-ranging valuations mm. from those. And I think it's due to just an information asymmetry in the in- industry, and so I think there's a huge opportunity there. You've got intelligence companies such as inverus and others that are trying to kind of close that gap, but still there's a major, major gap in the way there needs to become a more standard way that things are valued in this industry. There yeah. has to be.
0: Are we getting there? or I th-
1: We're getting closer. Yeah. But I think we're still a long ways off. And I think because of that, that's kind of led to some of the issues that we have with shale today.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk about shale. Where What has the shale revolution done? What happened with the downturn? And where do you see it going?
1: What has the shale revolution done? $280 billion in debt, more than <laughs> we've made in the last 10 years. And I think that has to do with mostly the capital structure of shale. It has to do with the capital structure of the EPs. I think we have way too many EPs that are operating in the same space. I think we need massive consolidation, which we're seeing. A lot more mergers, a lot more acquisitions, a lot more bankruptcies, unfortunately. Yeah. It's been kind of just a disaster, to be honest with you. It's too expensive and you're not getting enough cash flow out of it. And so these guys are paying ridiculous acreage costs. Their G and A is absolutely through the roof. When you're looking at the wellhead IRRs, You're getting mostly, depending on there's obviously there's a lot of asterisks here. It depends on the basin, depends on the formation, depends on a million different variables. But let's just say for intents purposes that it's it's 50% IRR at the wellhead, and and yet you're seeing what is passed on to. I've seen some reports of what's going to private equity, and it's like low single digits, like two, three percent. Yeah. And you look at okay, where does the money go? You look at executive compensation. Executive compensation. Across not just our industry, but across a lot of industries, need to be completely reworked to incentivize them for the right things. Whereas a lot of these companies have been incentivized by growth, and they fund growth by debt, and then they that growth since you're since you know oil is a declining asset, right? You're constantly having to reinvest money just to make minimum payments on your debt, and the debt is rising. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's not a sustainable cycle when you really look at full cycle economics it's not sustainable wow and the writing should have been on the walls with Aubrey McClendon and Chesapeake yep. with as much debt that they had if you really dive into dive into their books and everything that they did it was 100% funded by debt and it's obviously not sustainable
0: hmm so with that being said we're we're now seeing the effects and we've been seeing them do you feel like whatever if you want to put it in baseball terms what inning are we in to where then i mean cuz I feel like there's a lot of people, I mean, if you look at, you know, a lot of the majors and anyone's ticker, it's, we're still, Wall Street still hates us. A lot of these folks are still, you know, down 60, 70, 80%. There's a few that are, they're doing well, Hess, you know, Conoco, the majors will always be fine, but, but what inning are we in before us as an industry look attractive to Wall Street again?
1: I think we're probably in the fourth inning.
0: Wow. So there's going to be a lot like you you mentioned this early. There's a lot of blood on the streets Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you said a quote and I I don't want to take it out of your mouth, but you had said something earlier that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's opportunity arises when there's blood in the streets, but you don't want so much blood that you drown. Right. Right. Yeah. And so it's, this whole ESG thing, I mean, it's real. There's a lot of greenwashing, the latest report from, or latest uh, public release from BlackRock about, you know, possibly them divesting out of all yeah. fossil fuel investments. You know, they're the largest That's money manager matter. in the world, you know? And so from what I've seen, if you're if you're like, say, if you are private equity and you're trying to go raise money from real institutions, so whether it's pension funds, endowment funds, you know, the, the Harvard pension fund, firefighters of New Jersey, wherever it may be, seven doors automatically close. So if you're going to go pitch them, seven doors close because for green reasons currently, mm-hmm. that didn't used to be the case, right? Two doors close because they have completely burnout on the oil and gas industry, not getting returns. Yep. And the last one's a gambler and wants to take a risk. That is a hundred percent through my experiences of the last few years. A lot of conversations with a lot of different people. It's, it's real. ESG is real. Yeah, and if we don't get a lot of capital into this industry, it's going to affect every single one of us. It's going to affect our businesses. It's going to affect the companies that we work at, and as an industry, we are doing a terrible, a terrible job of trying to combat public perception. Yes, the majors are bending over and taking it on anything having to do with you know climate change and stuff. And I'm not here to, to be a climate change denier and say that it's not real. I'm saying I'm not a scientist and I don't know what necessarily is causing it, if it is happening at all. But I. Also know the abundance of hydrocarbons that we have in the United States affords us the lifestyle that we have, and I know for a fact everybody is not willing to completely remove petroleum products from their lives. Right, because they're that. not willing to make that sacrifice. And so if you're like, oh, I'm just going to get a Tesla and that's going to solve it. No, well now you're supporting the mining industry. Right. right? Yeah. And your entire car is.
0: Sorry, we had to take a quick pause there. Life happens. Even though if we're on the microphone, we were talking about a little bit about ESG. It's real. Companies are certainly going to have to adapt. And I want to end on a positive note and yeah. say that,
1: yeah, I know it seems like this is all doom and gloom and stuff, but this is part of the cyclical nature of the oil and gas industry. Of and course. so let me say where I see the opportunities. I see the opportunities in conventional. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see the opportunities in EOR, like we were talking before on the mic. Yeah. You know, especially when you're looking at potential for if the technology can get there for EOR and shale, we're currently only recovering 7% of hydrocarbons in place it's a huge opportunity to recover 93% more that's yeah without crazy. having to go out and wildcat or, or mess with anything that's you know more on the explore, exploratory side we're seeing offshore comeback yeah and so a lot of the efficiencies there and we're able to bring i guess the capital cost required for offshore down significantly so i think that's exciting it's just that you know shale itself is going to be going through this transformative phase and we're currently seeing it. like i said i think we're probably about in the fourth inning we're going to see a lot more consolidation a lot more mergers acquisitions And I think we're going to see executive compensation change to some KPIs that are actually meaningful. And I think the industry is going to come out a lot stronger as a result of it. I think we've just gotten ourselves in a bad position by just taking on a ton of debt. And a lot of that's, you know, Wall Street has offered it up. Yeah. And then Wall Street also has their own kind of speculative measurements of how they're going to value companies as a result of that too. Yeah. So this is just part of the business. And I think we're going to come out a lot stronger, especially in the next few years. But that being said, you know, it's very, very important to in this kind of technological age. A lot of people ask me, you know, should I be coming into the industry? And I can't honestly say that you should go and be 100%. If if my son was coming to me for advice, I can't just say go be a petroleum engineer. Right. I can say go be a mechanical engineer Mm -hmm. with an emphasis in petroleum engineering. Mm -hmm. Sure. To hedge your bets there. Right. And I'm seeing more and more of that because I know mechanical engineers who are petroleum engineers and the mechanical engineers who are software engineers, electrical engineers, so on and so forth. Yeah. And so it's it's a little bit more than the safe side. And then also, I think everybody eventually is going to become more of a data scientist too.
0: Yeah. That is becoming huge. There's such a demand for that. And I think that's how we're going to attract new talent within oil and gas is because there's such a demand. Because right now, everyone wants to go work for Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. You know, though, every, a lot of the kids coming up nowadays, even include my... Brother in law, who's in his mid 20s, he doesn't want anything to do with oil and gas. He looks at all these fancy tech companies kind of out of Silicon Valley. But I think, and Mark says it all the time, and you've you supplemented it by saying, you know, oil and gas will eventually become a Silicon Valley type industry. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of oil and gas companies are not going to want to claim oil and gas companies. They want to be energy companies and provide energy for the world, energy for the US, energy for everybody. But, you know, data's
1: eating the world. I think every company is becoming a data company. Big time. First, first and foremost, and then everything else is kind of just, yeah, it's just how you get the data, right. right?
0: Well, I know we're coming up here over an hour, so I want to respect your time. I got one last question Do you have any daily habits or routines that help keep you focused and motivated to keep grinding?
1: Working out, yeah, jiu jitsu, hell yeah, things, things that help me focus on not thinking about the past, not thinking about the future, but only focusing on the present. And jiu jitsu does a great job of that, big time, of just being able to focus and survive. I think always just kind of keeping your eye on the prize. I've always wanted one of those people who's been intrinsically, or that's not the right word. I guess just I'm always motivated by myself. Right. You know, I don't really need any kind of external motivation. And so just keeping my eye on the prize and knowing that all my hard work will, you know, it's starting to pay off and will continue to pay off as long as I, you know, stay the, stay the path. But also going back to what I said before, it's also not doing it at all costs like it used to be. It's right. also... I want to be, you know, the best husband. I want to be the best father. I want to be able to spend time with my family and work on building those relationships and just giving more than I take. And, and as long yeah. as I do that, then I think I'll be happy.
0: No, that I love that answer. And like I always say, chase your dreams, but don't lose your soul in the progress. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, man. I'm excited to see, you know, what you and Colin and I mean. Just, I mean, I say that because you guys are in business together. But you specifically, I wish you all the best, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You're disrupting the game and I love it. I know a lot of people, you know, certainly appreciate what you're doing. So thanks for coming on the show. And thanks I for having re- it, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you bet. I just want to take a quick moment to tell everyone about our upcoming events.
2: Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously we are in uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them, and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously, we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you, and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned, and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil and Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. And we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information and to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So We just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again.
0: Awesome. Thanks. And I was going to ask you, how can people reach out or how can people know, you know, get to know more about what you're doing, but it's pretty obvious, but I'll put your link in the show notes, LinkedIn, digital wildcatters, anything you guys are doing, any way I can promote you guys. Certainly welcome to do it for everyone out there. Thanks for listening. Always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town, baby. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.